Hey there, welcome to another episode of Livewire. I'm your host, Luke Burbank. This week on the show, we are talking music in all of its different forms, starting with Nikki Six from Motley Crue, talking about his days as a kid growing up in various small towns where he had some big dreams about playing rock and roll, and those dreams came true. Motley Crue has sold over 100 million records and counting. Then we're going to chat with legendary filmmaker Todd Haynes about his latest documentary. It's called The Velvet Underground, and it documents that band. Now, The Velvet Underground did not sell 100 million albums and counting, but they've had a huge cultural impact, which we're going to learn about. And then we're going to hear actual music from Melanie Charles off of her latest album, Y'all Don't Really Care About Black Women. It's going to be amazing. In fact, this whole episode is going to be amazing, so don't go anywhere. It all starts right after this. I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham, and this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious. Each week, we're going to talk about a big idea that's showing up across the cultural landscape, and we'll trace it through all the mediums we love. Books, movies, television, music, art. And I always want to talk about celebrity gossip, too. Of course. We hope you'll join us for new episodes each Thursday. Follow Critics at Large today, wherever you get podcasts. This episode of Live Wire is brought to you by Progressive. Most of you aren't just listening right now. You're driving or cleaning, even exercising. But what if you could be saving money by switching to Progressive? Drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average. And auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Multitask right now. Quote today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. Hey, Elena. Hey, Luke. How's it going? It's going great. Are you ready to play another round of station location identification examination? I am super duper whooper ready. Okay. This is, of course, where I talk about a place in the country where Livewire is on the radio. You got to figure out where I'm talking about. Okay. Okay. I know one of these hints I think will be a dead giveaway for you, being the writer that you are, but let's start with the fact that this city is home to the U.S.'s first chewing gum factory, which was opened in 1850. Uh, <laughs> I assume it was, they opened it right next to the uh, school desk factory, so that <laughs> right. you can just take the gum, put it right <laughs> under the desk. Well, I mean, the only chewing gum town I know is Chicago, but I feel like it's not Chicago. This is, uh, this is northeast of there. Uh, in 2009, residents of this place came together to make the world's biggest lobster roll, although I guess that record has since been broken by two Canadian groups. Okay, so it's somewhere in Maine. Yes, okay. It is also the birthplace of Henry Wadsworth Longfellow and Stephen King. Portland, Maine. Portland, Maine, where we are on WMEA Radio, part of the Maine Public Radio Network. I knew you'd get it. I have a pal who listens in Portland. Shout out to her. Hey, Betsy. <laughs> Shout out to Betsy and everyone listening all over the country. All right, should we uh, get going with the show? Let's do it. All right, take it away. From PRX, it's Livewire. 
This week, Motley Crue rocker Nikki Six. I got guys breathing down my neck that want my gig. I'm not giving you my gig. And filmmaker Todd Haynes. We felt like we were so privileged to be making a film using other films. With music from Melanie Charles. But of course, me being the artsy person that I am, I wasn't doing regular remixes. I was really doing reimaginings. I'm your announcer, Elena Passarello. And now, the host of Livewire, Lou Burbank. Thank you so much, Elena Passarello. And thanks to everyone tuning in from all over the country, including in Portland, Maine. Of course, we asked the Livewire listeners a question before this week's show. The question, because we're talking about music so much this episode, is what is your go-to karaoke song? This says a lot about a person. Oh, yeah. First of all, the fact that they have a go-to karaoke song, Mm -hmm. and then what that song is. We're going to hear those responses coming up in a little bit. First, though, we got to kick things off with the best news we heard all week. This, of course, is our little reminder that there is, in fact, some good news happening out there somewhere in the world. Elena, what is the best news you heard all week? Okay, well, for the best news of the week, we've got to go to Long Island. How was that? <laughs> I was wondering what that accent was. <laughs> On Long Island, uh, there's some new residents, Stephanie Whitley and her family, which includes an eight-year-old cat named Lily. Mm-hmm. Uh, they moved there, and then a couple of weeks in, Lily, who was an outdoor cat, just didn't come home one night. And they were like, oh, no, is she she lost? Like, this is a new place. Is this going to be okay? As a, as a recent cat owner mm-hmm. and a person whose entire identity is now guy who brings cat around on a leash. <laughs> Lost cat posters have a whole new impact on Oh, me. yeah. And if you have like an unleashed cat like I do, he's always pretty good about coming back, but every once in a while, you know, it'd be 12, 13, 15, 20 hours and it just, mm-hmm. your your world just sort of like grinds to a halt. And that's what happened with eight-year-old Lily, who is also a gray cat with gold eyes like my cat Spooner. The reason that I know that Lily is a gray cat with gold eyes is because Lily came back. And Lily came back in a spectacular way that was documented on the Whitley family's ring camera. (laughs) Okay. This is how we're finding out about almost everything that's happening anymore in the world is someone's doorbell camera caught it happening. It's the new must-see TV is just like cool stuff that happens on ring cams. Remember when that lady uh, fought off a bald eagle that was trying to take away her pet goose? (laughs) Yes. Some, I think 30% of that is accurate. (laughs) This only involves one animal and it's Lily who showed up after four days uh, in absentia And the way that she alerted the family that she was home was that she rang the doorbell. (laughs) So there's this great video of this beautiful gray cat uh, stretching up past the ring cam. You see her belly and then you hear, you don't hear the doorbell, but you hear the natural doorbell that all cats possess, which is just howling to be let in. And then you hear this just joyous, and then the door opens and she comes in and the cat's like, what? I was just on a walkabout, you know. Uh, I feel like cats have some innate sense of when you may have given up that they're ever coming back, and mm-hmm. that's when they come back. It's one of those, it's like you have to release desire mm-hmm. on them. Yeah. <laughs> and then you manifest them somehow. Yep. <laughs> We're talking about cats being outside, and speaking of the outdoors, of course, you know about the clothing brand Patagonia, mm-hmm. which is, you know, often associated with uh, climbing mountains and doing all kinds of rugged outdoorsy stuff, or jogging in Portland, which is my, <laughs> how I tend to utilize the equipment. Well, the family that owns Patagonia, particularly the guy who started it, Yvonne Chouinard, they've announced that they're giving 
the company away. Or more accurately, they have given the company away. Mm. And it's a fascinating story. This guy, Yvonne Chouinard, has always been, based on what I've read, a kind of um, unlikely business person. Like, he was a self-proclaimed dirtbag back <laughs> in the 60s and 70s. That's not a pejorative. That's just like people who live for climbing and skiing, and they just live out of the back of a car, and they're not very hung up on material possessions. Somehow along the way, he ends up founding this tremendously successful company, Patagonia Clothing, but it never really sat right with him. He would get mad, according to this New York Times profile of him, when he would be listed as one of the billionaires in America. Mm. He said, I drive an old Subaru. He uh, and his family, they have a home in, in Wyoming and a home in California, but they're described as very modest homes. He wears old secondhand clothes. So he was just getting really fed up with being a successful business person and told the lawyers you got to do something about this. And so they hatched this pretty complicated plan where basically the family gives away all of their control of Patagonia. And so uh, some of the money goes into a trust that's going to support organizations that are combating climate change. And then the rest of it is going to go into a certain kind of uh, system whereby Patagonia continues to operate as a for-profit company. But this family, it's irrevocable. They cannot get it back. They are no longer the owner's of this thing. One of their attorneys said that the family's philosophy is that every billionaire is a policy failure. Hey. That's, that's, a, that's a heck of a statement. I yeah. mean, they really are of the opinion that certainly they don't think they need billions of dollars to be happy in their own life. And they've given the company away. And Yvonne Chouinard, by all accounts, is extremely relieved because, you know, <laughs> They've got a place to live and, you know, he's got enough money to be okay, but he doesn't have to keep being a billionaire anymore. And he just wants to basically hang out in his yard and grow his organic produce and not be rich anymore. So that, that is the best news that I heard all week. All right, let's welcome our first guest on over to Livewire. He is a founding member of Motley Crue. He's a three-time New York Times bestselling author, and he is also a recovering addict who works to help other folks who are in recovery. He's got a new book out. It's called The First 21, How I Became Nikki Six, and it follows his transformation from Idaho farm boy to genuine rock icon. Nikki stopped by Livewire last year to tell us about the book and his life. Take a listen to this. Here's something I didn't know I'd be saying as the host of a public radio show. Nikki Six from Motley Crue. Welcome to Livewire. Hey, what's happening? Woo! So this book starts out, you're sitting in Dodger Stadium watching a baseball game, and you realize, wow, this is one of the few really iconic venues that we haven't played as Motley Crue. Yeah. And wouldn't it have been nice if, if we could? But, but you all had agreed you weren't going to play anymore. Yeah. And so that seemed like it was kind of unlikely to happen. But then you changed your mind? It, it was very unlikely to happen. And we signed that contract so there would never be any version of Motley Crue that wouldn't be the one that started together in 1981. I guess the only way out of it was if all four of us wanted to do that, but we didn't think we ever would. So that guarantee that we could kind of put an end to something in a positive way. 
when the Motley Crue movie The Dirt came out, then we had started working together, writing music and spending time on the set. And there's a really good feeling amongst us, but still no idea like we were going to go tour again. That never came up until I got a phone call from our agent and said, Live Nation wants to know if you want to do some shows around the movie. And I was like, I, you know, we've played every arena on earth 35 <laughs> times and I'm kind of digging where I'm at in my life. And it's a lot of work to get together for eight arena shows, even though it would be special for the fans. And he said, excuse me. I said, stadiums. And I went, uh. oh, oh, <laughs> like Dodger stadium potentially. Yeah, like Dodger <laughs> stadium. So got on the phone with the guys. They're like, we have a contract. What are you thinking? I go, I don't know. What are you thinking? Eventually, we all talked. We agreed to do the eight shows. Def Leppard came on board, partnered up with us. So it's Motley Crue, Def Leppard, Poison, Joan Jett. What a, like, summer outside, great time. They put eight more shows on sale, sold out. Eight more shows, sold out. Rumor was they're going to come back and offer us the world with this package. And then I'm literally driving down the freeway. And I hear about COVID-19 mm-hmm. and it wasn't, it was within only a week that I pulled all my kids out of college. Everybody like, you know, had to come to the house. We are in isolation and, and every, everything changed. But what didn't change is that we still want to go out and tour. I was so fascinated just to read about what your preparation is yes. for one of these big stadium tours, just like the physical, the mental, uh, the emotional, like what do you have to do to get ready to go? Go do that. I mean, I, I told my wife, we get back uh, up to Wyoming and December 1st, I got to start training. I'm on stage June 19th. That, that, wow. You got to be stage ready at least a month before that. And we got band rehearsals. And I said, I said I'm not looking forward to it because it's hard. I mean, I remember when, when I was in full training mode for the tour, we went to see a movie and my wife ordered some nachos and she got a <laughs> glass of red wine and she goes, do you want anything, baby? And I, oh, man, I want those butterfingers. Oh man, I love that popcorn. I go, no, I got my little, my little bag with eight almonds in it. Oh no. It's <laughs> like, oh man. She's like, okay. And water, you know, woo heavy metal but you know what i got guys breathing down my neck that want my gig i'm not giving you my gig you can't have my crown you can't stand on my stage and and if you want to i'm gonna fight you for it so that that's why like for me when we're gonna go on tour i i don't want to i don't want to half-ass it out there and especially if we're coming out of retirement no way yeah Right. And it's like three hours of cardio and weights. Is that right? To get ready for a stadium show? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's a lot. And, and then, you know, as, uh, as you do fun things like break guitars for a living for over 30 <laughs> years, you have torn rotators. I had my hip replaced. I just recently had my back fused. Like, this, like you know, I thought when I was 25 or 35, diving off the stage into the audience, you, you land on the cement and you get up and it's like, come on, let's do it again, you know. But uh, that stuff adds up and you kind of I equate it to being like a, an athlete, you know, mm-hmm. after, yeah. after 50. Mm-hmm. This is Live Wire. We've got to take a quick break, but when we come back, we will hear more from Nikki Six of Motley Crue. So stay with us. Hey, Elena. 
Hey, Luke, I didn't see you there. It's that time of year again. My seasonal allergies are back. Oh, congratulations. But also, it's our spring member drive, which is happening right now through May 17th. Oh, I like that much more than seasonal allergies. Yeah, if you are not yet a member of Livewire's League of Extraordinary Listeners, well, now is the time to do it. Why? Well, because this League of Extraordinary Listeners uh, is what keeps the lights on over at Livewire Inc., uh, which is definitely not the association that we are part of. I'm probably a 501c3. They don't let me near any of the paperwork mm-hmm. or bookkeeping, and it's really better that way. Yes. Point is, we... We are only able to keep doing this show because of support from our members, and we would love it if you could join us in that right now. Plus, there are all kinds of sweet perks, including uh, special discounted tickets to live recordings, on-air shout-outs, exclusive content. Uh, And, Elena, uh, one more thing that, of course, we would not be a self-respecting public radio show if we didn't offer this. If we didn't offer the most iconic public radio swag of all time, a tote bag. True iconic status. Yeah, but it's not just any tote bag. This is like a really good tote bag. It's got a second zipper, an internal zipper. Yes, whatever you want to put in the tote bag, that's your business, okay? What we're Mm -hmm. here to talk about is you keeping Livewire going. So head on over to livewireradio.org to see the various member levels. It does not matter how much you are giving every month to Livewire. It just matters that you do it because it goes a long way for us. So thank you. Vacations, weddings, birthdays, and reunions. Oh, my, there's so much going on. Get the most out of your spring plans by stocking up on pre-alcohol now. Zbiotics pre-alcohol probiotic drink is the world's first genetically engineered probiotic. It was invented by PhD scientists to tackle rough mornings after drinking. Here's how it works. When you drink, alcohol gets converted into a toxic byproduct in the gut. It's this byproduct, not dehydration, that's to blame for your rough next day. Zbiotics produces an enzyme to break this byproduct down. Just remember to make Zbiotics your first drink of the night, drink responsibly, and you'll feel your best tomorrow. Go to zbiotics.com slash livewire to get 15% off your first order when you use livewire at checkout. Zbiotics is backed with 100% money back guarantee, so if you're unsatisfied for any reason, they'll refund your money, no questions asked. Remember to head to zbiotics.com slash livewire and use the code livewire at checkout for 15% off. Thank you to Zbiotics for sponsoring this episode and our good times. Welcome back to Livewire from PRX. I'm your host, Luke Burbank, here with Elena Passarello. We are listening back to a conversation we recorded with Nikki Six of Motley Crue back in 2021, talking about his book, The First 21, How I Became Nikki Six. Really, this book is the first 21 years of your life and, and your, your childhood and your sort of early days in Los Angeles, um, a childhood that involved a lot of moving around and not a lot of stability. You have this part of the book which you say is the recipe for making a rock star. You say, take a child, the more impressionable and imaginative, the better. Add a dash of neglect or abandonment, shake vigorously, and let sit. Does that basically describe your childhood? Yeah, in a lot of ways. But also the interesting thing about going back and taking a, uh, a, a bird's eye view, a helicopter view of a time in your life, you get to see things a little bit different. And because we went all the way back, even to my birth, there's discrepancies. My mother, mm. uh, as you know, the book went on, it isn't about being, you know, disrespectful to my mom and rest in peace. She did her best that she could do with the tools that she had. Um, but 
you know, telling me things when I was super young and impressionable about my father and about uh, even like my birth. Like I, I was never supposed to be named Frank. You know, he, the bad guy, named me Frank. She wanted me to be named something else. My mom was always. The she vi- wanted you to be named Nikki Six. <laughs> yes, she did. It was it was Nikki Six or Axel Rose. You know, but uh, right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but you know, I went back and I started talking to my family. I started talking to my aunt, my mom's sister, and they're like, "That's not true." Hmm. And and you carry around this suitcase full of misinformation on your left side and on your right side. It's like resentment and that. This stuff gets heavy, you know, and when I got sober, I got to look at a lot of that stuff. I also think those first 21 years, for for probably all of us right here, there was a moment where you're like, that's what I want to do. Like, mm-hmm. that's what I want to do. I talked to authors. They're like, mm-hmm. yeah, I remember when I was 10 and I read this and I was like, that's what I want to do for a living. Or, you know, a kid gets his first basketball and he sees his heroes on TV and next thing you know, he's the next, you know, NBA champion. So I think those first 21 years are super important and to uh, instill that into the reader that not only can they reminisce, but if they pass it on to their own children or people read it that are young, that, you know, going for the dream is the right thing to do. You know, when you, when you, when you quit, you get what you get, you know, don't quit, yeah. go for it. And that's what I did. What was that moment for you in your first 21 years where you started to really see like music and rock music as kind of your way to a different life? I talked to a comedian recently and he told me that when he discovered comedy, it was the first time he didn't feel like an alien. Like mm-hmm. he was like, oh, yeah, that's like my tribe. And mm-hmm. um, I remember, you know, we moved around a lot. We moved from place to place to place. And every time I'd have a best friend, we would leave. And, you know, um, my grandparents were you know, poor, hardworking people. Grandfather was a mechanic, worked in a gas station. So we were just barely getting by. And when I was young and, and starting to not really feel like I had any roots, it was music that was the thing I was like, that's what I'm missing, you know, hearing it on the radio. And um, as funny as this sounds, there's a song by Jimmy Dean named Big Bad John. The sausage guy? Yeah, the sausage <laughs> guy. Before he was the sausage right, guy. Right, he was a singer. Yeah. He was a singer. And he wrote I this song. song. <laughs> and I was in Twin Falls, Idaho, and I would hear this song. And it's really no different than a Bruce Springsteen song or a Bob Dylan song or a million other um storytellers and poets and stuff. And it wasn't just a pop song. It wasn't Mm -hmm. like a simple song with a verse and chorus. And I remember calling the radio station all the time going that I need more of that. I need more of that. And, you know, later we would discover more of that and like Jim Croce and people like that. But I was also drawn to Deep Purple and Mm -hmm. Black Sabbath and Elton John and Aerosmith. Mm -hmm. And then for some reason, you know, like when the New York Dolls album first came out, and very few people know who the New York Dolls are, but I shocked the system. And I remember going, well, if a band could sound like this and could look kind of like that, I mean, that was like the beginning of the yeah. recipe for what I would end up doing first in a band called London that was this mm-hmm. close to making it, and then later, and later Motley Crue, you know, and that's, I think, why writing books works for me is I feel like I'm a bit of a, a storyteller. I'm drawn to it. And that was in those first 21 years. I was probably, I don't know, nine, 10. Mm. Those storytelling songs. Yeah. They, yeah. That's what hooked you. Yeah. 
Yeah, you write in this book that you have always really uh, been interested in the work of Bukowski and that when you write songs, when you come up with song titles, you're trying to sort of come up with something that really punches through. And you have written, you know, the most iconic Motley Crue songs. We are fans of Livewire, since that's literally the name of yeah. this show. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, we got we to talk about that. Oh, wait a minute. Wait a minute. I actually took that from uh, a Stars album, which is a band oh. a lot of people don't wow. know a lot about the band Stars. Yeah. But anyway... Bukowski. Bukowski. Um, I think if it doesn't sting, what's the point? Like, I don't think you just need another vanilla song title or another vanilla lyric or another vanilla band. I, I just think that sometimes the rawer the better. You know, shout at mm -hmm. the devil. There's so much in that. It's not even about the devil. Like, I've been trying to tell the media that for 40 years. This, there's no Satan involved was, here. And by the way, it was definitely banned in my evangelical Christian home. I'll tell you that much. And, by, and you could have told your mom it wasn't with the devil. Even if it was the devil, it's not with right. him. We're shouting yeah. at him. But, you know, yeah. kickstart my heart. Dr. Feel Good. Life is beautiful. Home sweet home. Th things that are sticky. And mm -hmm. um, what's interesting about the concept of sticky is I, I didn't know that I was so interested in marketing. You're like reading Alice Cooper's biography. I mean, you were like studying this, right? <laughs> so I'm studying, yeah, I'm studying the business. I'm studying how to not get ripped off. I'm studying these bands on vinyl. And I don't think there's anything unique about me. I think that if you could actually line up 10 of your favorite artists, they might all tell you the same thing. I think we're all fans. I mean, I'm still a fan. Like Aerosmith was my band. They'll always be my band. And mm. there's something about having your band, you know, mm. and, and I love that Motley Crue is that to people. Mm -hmm. Right. I guess, I mean, you uh, have had this experience that so many people fantasize about of standing on the stage, you know, in front of 50,000, 60,000 people who are screaming their brains out. What is that actually like from your perspective? I mean, can you even take that all in when you're up there or are you just thinking about the, the playing the next note? Like what's that experience like as someone who's actually had it? The first night, you're thinking about the next note. The second night, you're thinking about why is your left foot moving like that? The third night, you're kind of like, oh, this is kind of cool. And about the fourth night, the band is in the groove, in the pocket. Mm. It's, it is so sexy. It's sweaty. It's hot. And you see the crowd, and it just keeps getting better and better because it's this actual living, breathing animal that's happening. And they're singing back words that you wrote about something mm. you experienced. I mean, I feel like, I feel like now in my life, it's just like, wow. Um, I don't think in my life it was ever like, whoa, we're, we're like badasses. I, it does feel badass, by the way. Um, yeah. you know, <laughs> I, I hope mean, it does. It Sounds feels, badass. It feels badass. <laughs> um, but um, now it's just like, wow, like, I can't believe I look over and it's the same damn guys. Wow. Like, what are they doing here? It's been 40 years. Like, I don't even know how we still know each other. I know my band longer than I know anybody in my life, wow. except for a couple family members. Now, now, you know, I see grandparents, parents and kids out there. Cool. It's pretty yeah. It's, it's <laughs> rad, but then sometimes I'm like, don't you want to cover the kids' ears for this next part? <laughs> right. For girls, girls, girls. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right. 
Well, uh, this book is a really fun uh, and uh, informative read, particularly if you're a fan of Motley Crue and of Nikki Six's. The book is The First 21. Nikki Six, thank you so much for coming on Livewire. Thank you. It's been fantastic. Yep. You guys are great. Have a great rest of your day. That was Nikki Six right here on Livewire. Um, now, since we recorded that, that was back in 2021, Nikki and the rest of Motley Crue, they were able to go on that stadium tour Started it back in June, and now there is even talk of extending the tour outside of North America to three other continents. So they are going to be shouting at the devil and <laughs> singing about home sweet home. and Kickstarting my heart. <laughs> trying to think of Molly Crew songs I can say the name of on polite <laughs> public radio. Anyway, look for Motley Crew on a continent near you. Hey, special thanks this episode to David Shaw of Portland, Oregon, and Anna Rankin of Bellingham, Washington. My old stumps. David and Anna are part of the Livewire member community, and they are generously supporting our show with a donation each month. And we're very thankful for that because it's how we can keep doing Livewire. So a huge thanks to David and Anna for keeping it going. This is Livewire. Of course, each week we ask our listeners a question. And because we are talking so much about music on the show this week, we ask the Livewire listeners, what is your go-to karaoke song? And Elena has been gathering up those responses. What are you seeing? <laughs> I love this one from Vicky. Vicky's go-to karaoke tune is Wild Thing. And Vicky wants you to know, by the way, I am 67 years old. <laughs> now, wait, is it Wild Thing, the Tone Loke song? Or is it Wild Thing, oh. I Think I Love You, But I Want to Know for Sure? Now, isn't that an interesting question? I, I mean, I hope that Vicky is doing some kind of mashup of both. <laughs> yeah. Okay, what's, um, what's something else that our listeners like to sing? Oh, I like the strategy here from Julian's answer. Julian's go-to karaoke is Tequila by The Champs because you only have to sing one word. <laughs> I have been in a bar where somebody does that song and Tequila. it is the anticipation is intense. <laughs> it's almost like an ecstatic build. Mm. Like if you're at like an electronic show and everyone waits for like the, the beat, beat to, to drop, drop and they throw their glow sticks in the air. It's like, it's like that when the person finally goes tequila. I would do like push-ups until, uh -huh. or like hold a plank, you know, so it's some kind of physical feat and then the uh -huh. tequila. So at least the, there would be something else to look at. Or you could do like Pee Wee Herman does in Pee Wee's Big Adventure and you could <sighs> dance on the bar top, which of course is what happens in that scene to that song, Tequila. <laughs> All right. Uh, what's another song that our listeners love singing? Okay. Uh, this is good strategy from Jack, I think. Jack's go-to is any Billy Joel song. So, Huh. Although, I mean... Any Billy Joel song? It's got a lot of songs. Downeaster Alexa, which is about the decline of the fishing industry. You think that was slap heard that karaoke? song. Can I tell you this? I, and I, I like Billy Joel, actually, but I heard that song in a quilt shop in Kansas, <laughs> and I had to Shazam it because I wanted to make sure I never heard it again. And I didn't realize it was Billy Joel. I, I'm, this is a totally true story. I, 
I, I held my phone next to the speaker because I said, I need to know what this is so it never enters my life again. Oh, my God. Please, let's go do some karaoke. I'm not going to tell you what song I'm going to sing, but uh, it might involve uh, a ship or two. That sounds more like scary Elena. All right. Thank you to everyone who sent in their responses. Those were great. We have another audience question for next week's show, which we will reveal at the end of this episode. So stick around for that. In the meantime, our next guest is well-known for his several Academy Award-nominated films, including The Amazing Far From Heaven, I'm Not There, and Carol. He also made the film Velvet Goldmine, which he's sort of returning to uh, in a way with his latest project. It's a documentary titled The Velvet Underground about the band, The Velvet Underground, and how they came about and then how they fell apart and why we are still talking about them all these years later. Todd Haynes, welcome to Livewire. Thanks, Luke. Great to be on Livewire. Um, were you a huge uh, Velvet Underground fan uh, before getting into making this film? No, I, I never really liked their music. Uh, <laughs> I don't know what all the to-do is about. No, I, I, I was a major, major Velvet Underground fan. And yeah, it's a, I, I consider the music and the discovery of the music you know, which is always, I think most people find it, you know, kind of out of order, you know, they kind of, they find it circuitously. They find mm -hmm. it kind of through a friend's recommendation or because Bowie put, started to perform White Light, White Heat and, and uh, you know, Waiting for the Man and his Ziggy shows. Mm -hmm. You find it in a way that sort of makes it feel like your own discovery. And I think that would be true even if you were in the 1960s in New York City, where you still felt like part of a sort of secret society of very privileged art makers mm -hmm. in a very unique time and place, you know, and you knew a little more than the people around you. And, mm -hmm. uh, and part of that was experiencing this band. I, I think this film is so great. It's sort of a tone piece almost. I mean, it's mm -hmm. sort of... It's it's linear in that it's it's introducing the members of the band and their career, but it's also kind of non-linear in the sort of visual way that it's presented. I mean, it's just a really interesting piece of filmmaking. Did you have an idea for the picture in your mind before you started, or, or what we see in this film, is that just what evolved in the editing process? Well, of course, you know, everything that one says about the documentary process is true. You really are writing it as you go and you're conceiving it as you go. And it's a circular process where you keep dipping back into the well of the material that you've collected or the interviews that you've done. But that said, I had a very strong desire to make this a visual experience, this film. Mm -hmm. And I knew that this band was uniquely connected to this moment in avant-garde film. Unlike any band you could you could think of, right? That, that, that they were so intrinsically apart, not of just the Warhol scene. You know, there were all of these people who were making films and showing series at the Cinematheque with Jonas Mikas and the, the Velvet Underground were, were for a time kind of a house band for the Cinematheque screenings. And so this offered so many opportunities visually and right away, that was my kind of creative vision for what the film might be like. You know, what I felt in my editors, Afonso Gonsalves and Adam Kernitz, we felt like we were so privileged to be making a film using other films and other filmmakers mm -hmm. in the storytelling. And that we could really honor 
the range of styles that were being explored by people working outside of conventional narrative filmmaking at the time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you have all this amazing footage. A lot of it's, you know, from the factory and other things. But as far as a Velvet Underground show, you know, where they sort of sat on a stage and were filmed in what we would consider normal concert lighting, uh, was it hard to find stuff like that? Does that kind of thing even exist? It, it doesn't exist for this band. It, it's, it's sort of what I knew right away as soon as I said yes to doing this. I'm like, there's no traditional material associated with this band, period. Go. You know, yeah. <laughs> and what there is, but what there is, is the cinema of Andy Warhol. And I knew that that in and of itself, even though I knew probably those films better than I knew a lot of these other films that we used to kind of weave through this documentary. Um, I knew that even that cachet of material was going to be deep and was going to require and invite incredible penetration and exploration. And it did. And so, and one of our first endeavors was to reach out to the Warhol Museum in Pittsburgh, to go there, to hang out with those guys, to, to hang out with the archivist, Greg Pierce, and to let him start to show me the treasures, you know, mm-hmm. and, and he certainly did. You're listening to Livewire. I'm Luke Burbank here with Elena Passarello. We're interviewing Todd Haynes about his film, The Velvet Underground. Um, there is an amazing line about Lou Reed in the film where somebody uh, says he was talented beyond his talent, <laughs> which I think perfectly encapsulates why he was so watchable and listenable, even though on paper he did not have the most conventionally in tune voice or the hottest guitar licks. Yeah. I mean, look, Lou brought something very raw and visceral to the band and to all of his music. That said, he was the most extraordinary songwriter and lyricist and ultimately became this extraordinary guitar player. So his evolution as a artist continued to evolve. But at the very beginning, it was like that rawness was meeting with the the sort of avant-garde virtuosity of, of John Cale and a very different kind of trajectory in music that brought him from Wales to the US. So the two of them collided in all of these unexpected ways and it changed both of them. And ultimately that's what I think it's described in the film. It's what all great bands are, is more than the sum of their parts. Lou Reed is a a pretty complicated figure. I mean, depending on which biography you pick up, um, what were you feeling was your responsibility to kind of accurately portray him as somebody who definitely uh, was a person who was really struggling with things. Well, Lou Reed is uh, one of our great artists. And with that, in his temperament, in his upbringing, in his unique character, there was a lot of tempestuousness and a lot of layers of what sounds like from people who knew him, even from the earliest years, defenses that he would use with a, with a measure of hostility to protect himself from pain and vulnerability and insecurity. And that seems to have described him no matter who you read through most of his career. So it wasn't just like rock and roll behavior. This was stuff in the character, in the sort of DNA of this very special and unique person. Um, Doesn't mean it was easy to, to be around, but you know, I think what's 
amazing is what's so clear to me is that this pain, these conflicts, he put into the music right away. You know, he wrote heroin in high school. Wow. And it's all in that song. And that's how the Velvet Underground were so different and distinguished themselves so coherently from so much other kinds of stuff that was going on in the 1960s, even in a very robust, incredibly productive period for, for popular art and music. Very few people were talking about that kind of pain, that kind of ambivalence about being alive, the kind of need to like want to check out on certain kinds of drugs and check out from the world and explore some of these darker territories. It feels a little bit like Lou Reed's musical journey kind of came full circle. I mean, he starts out as, as, as in the film, he, he says he wants to be a rock star. He's writing, you know, poppy songs. Yeah. And then you have the Velvet Underground with this very kind of avant-garde sound and people don't know quite what to make of it. And then towards the end, he starts to write these just absolute pop gems, mm -hmm. you know, things like Walk on the Wild Side and, and Sweet Jane. I mean, was that always in there? I mean, was it, did he ultimately get to where he wanted to be, which was to be a rock and roll star writing pop songs? I mean, I think he was able to touch all of those different territories and some, and, and similar to David Bowie, you know, I think somebody who was always interested in exploring art and poetry and literature and finding influences outside of popular art to inform him and guide him, uh, wanted to deal with issues of sexuality and um, areas that weren't being described as overtly and flagrantly in, among other rock and roll artists. Uh, but both Bowie and Lou Reed also wanted some le level of success. And mm -hmm. so I think they navigated between those two mm -hmm. often conflicting ideas. But also that's why it took all those different elements to bring things together like a Ziggy Stardust concept that really drew from New York, drew from English ideas. It's, it's how the Velvet Underground became one of the most influential bands in the history of, of popular music. Uh, and then his second solo uh, outing in Transformer that David Bowie produced would be his most successful. Yeah, you sort of, I think, answered my final question, which was, what do you think the, the kind of lasting influence of the Velvet Underground is? You know, what was so wild about doing this film and doing it when we did, coming out of the Trump era, entering into the first season of COVID, um, mm -hmm. is you really felt like this was this sort of endangered planet that we were visiting every day in the film, in the, in the archives, in the whole sense of a cultural community, of a creative community, swapping ideas and, and being in very close physical proximity to each other in ways we could, couldn't be during COVID mm -hmm. and, uh, and, and ways that we were pulled apart from each other in the Trump years, you know, and, and in our digital life and culture and all the ways that we exist today. It made for the uniqueness of this time to be underscored, the preciousness of it. And, I, and we felt like we were putting it in a context that people could share it again and see it again in, in, in its sort of totality. And that hopefully that could be inspiring. And it could be inspiring to young people who may not know 
a lot about this time. Uh, and it could be inspiring to people who miss things about this time and the way that we all behaved in times in the past where we could all physically, you know, cohabitate. Mm-hmm. Well, it is a fascinating film. It's The Velvet Underground. It's Todd Haynes' new project. Todd, thanks so much for coming on LiveWire to talk about it. Thanks, you guys. It was a real pleasure. That was Todd Haynes right here on LiveWire. The Velvet Underground, the documentary we're talking about, is available on Apple Plus now, and it's going to be getting a Criterion Collection release as a 4K digital master on December 13th, when the Criterion Collection gets involved, Elena. Yeah, that's when it's legit. You know you've uh, yeah. really done something, yeah. This is Livewire. I'm Luke Burbank. That's Elena Passarello. Okay, we got to take a quick break, but don't go anywhere, because when we come back, we're going to hear some incredible music that blends jazz, soul, and R&B from Melanie Charles. So stay with us. Livewire is thrilled to be partnering with Portland's own Portal Tea this season. Formerly known as Tea Chai Tay, Portal Tea is the premier tea company in the Pacific Northwest, and they make one-of-a-kind handcrafted tea blends like cinnamon churro chai and blueberry cream Earl Grey. Use the code LIVEWIRE, all lowercase, for 20% off at portaltea.co. Welcome back to Livewire from PRX. I'm Luke Burbank here with Elena Passarello. We've been talking about music this week on the show, and now it's time to actually hear some music. Our musical guest this hour hails from Brooklyn and has spent the past few decades blending jazz, soul, and R&B in ways that have caught the attention of the New York Times, NPR's Tiny Desk, SZA, Gorillaz. Her album, Y'all Don't Really Care About Black Women, pays homage to black women in music and breathes new energy into works by Billie Holiday and Sarah Vaughn, among others. Melanie Charles joined us last fall on LiveWire. Let's take a listen to that. Melanie Charles, welcome to LiveWire. Hi. <laughs> um, I have really been enjoying your music. It's just so hard to describe because it, it just, I feel like you bring in so many different elements. Uh, one of them, uh, you're a flautist, which you just don't, you don't see a lot in, in in music these days outside of maybe the classical space. When did you start playing flute? I started playing flute around junior high school, actually. I went to IS318 um, in Brooklyn. Actually, it's the same junior high that Jay-Z went to, fun Whoa. fact. Whoa. But not at the same time, obviously. He's <laughs> okay. a few years older than me. And he notably uses flute in Big Pimpin'. <laughs> Maybe there's a connection. connection. (laughs) I I guess so. Maybe there's something there. But yeah, Yeah. like at that time I was doing a lot of the Miss America talent competition pageants Mm. and stuff. Like I grew up in like talent show pageant world. And when it came time to choose our instruments, I was out of class. I was I was in one of those competitions. So by the time I got to school, they stuck me with the flute and I was so (laughs) upset. Like I wanted saxophone or trumpet. And they were like, look, all we have is flute. So deal with it. Um, But of course, I ended up falling in love with the instrument. So, yeah, it started back then. I started classically trained. I was playing in the orchestra. I also doubled on piccolo as well. So, yeah, with time, I found a way to incorporate my flute with the other styles of music that I'm doing. 
the the title of this album is y'all don't really care about black women which is um a pretty provocative title and i think it's sort of right in there what the, what the message is that you're that you're looking to express i'm wondering how you how you arrived at the decision to name the the album that so, you know, when Verve Records approached me to do this remix project, you know, they have a Verve remix series that they do. And usually they just get different producers, DJs to come in and flip um, songs. But of course, me being the artsy person that I am, I wasn't doing regular remixes. I was really mm. doing reimaginings. And, you know, by the time it came for me to start choosing the songs, it was during the lockdown. It was around the time that Brianna was shot and killed. Mm. And Brianna Taylor. Brianna Taylor. And it just really was a rude awakening and a reminder that black women in this country are really not protected and cared for. And, you know, this is not a new phenomenon. Um, one of the people that I celebrate in this album is Nina Simone. There's a famous interview where she talks about how one of the promoters didn't pay her. And so she had to show up with a shotgun in order for the man to pay. Do you, do you know about this? I think I've heard that story. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's a, it's a famous one. <laughs> the title just suddenly came to me one day. It just hit me. And the label, God bless them. At first, they were a little bit like, geez, like, are you sure? That's kind of not a very warm title. And I was like, yeah, but it, but it's true, you know, and they and they had to agree with that. And I'm really glad that it's been really well received just by hearing the title. I noticed people are, are already interested. So mission accomplished. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. <laughs> Uh, what song are we going to hear? You're going to hear Woman of the Ghetto. It was the first single that we put out on this project. It is a remake uh, uh, sung by the great Marlena Shaw. She's the only woman that I reimagined that is still alive. Oh. Um, so hopefully, Marlena, if you're out there, I hope you like this flip. I hope you like it. <laughs> well, let's hear it. This is uh, Melanie Charles here on Livewire. Her new record is Y'all Don't Really Care About Black Women. Let's take a listen. the ghetto listen to me legislators how do you raise your kids in the ghetto how do you raise your kids in the ghetto feed one child The dead in the ghetto Strong to 
and gentlemen, you're about to hear from the wonderful Miss Brandy Younger on the harp. Charles coming to you live from Bushwick. Ah, full performance. Full. Her new album is Y'all Don't Really Care About Black Women. Melanie, thank you so much for coming on Livewire and sharing that with us. That was really incredible. Thank you for having me, Luke. Thank you for having me, Elena. That was Melanie Charles right here on Livewire. And you can check out more of her work at MelanieCharles.com. All right, before we get out of here, a little preview of next week's episode. We are going to be talking to podcaster and former public radio star Sam Sanders about his obsession with pop culture. We're also going to be hearing from author Erica L. Sanchez about her new memoir, Crying in the Bathroom, and the profound impact that Lisa Simpson had on her life as a young person. And as always, we are going to be looking to get your answer to our listener question. Elena, what are we asking the Livewire listeners for next week's show? What pop culture moment lives in your head rent-free? 
That's pretty much all that's going on in my head, sadly, at any time. <laughs> yeah, same. All right. Uh, if you have an answer to that question, go ahead and hit us up on Twitter or Facebook. We're at LiveWire Radio pretty much everywhere. All right, that's going to do it for this week's episode of LiveWire. A huge thanks to our guests, Nikki Six, Todd Haynes, and Melanie Charles. LiveWire is brought to you in part by Alaska Airlines. Laura Haddon is our executive producer. Heather D. Michelle is our executive director. Our producer and editor is Melanie Sevchenko. Our assistant editor is Trey Hester. Our marketing manager is Paige Thomas. And our production fellow is Tanvi Kumar. A. Walker Spring composes our music. Molly Pettit is our technical director and mixer. Additional funding provided by the James F. and Marion L. Miller Foundation. Livewire was created by Robin Tenenbaum and Kate Sokoloff. This week, we'd like to thank members David Shaw of Portland, Oregon, and Anna Rankin of Bellingham, Washington. For more information about our show or how you can listen to our podcast, head on over to livewireradio.org. I'm Luke Burbank for Elena Passarello and the whole Livewire crew. Thanks for listening, and we will see you next week. Wouldn't it be amazing to have a piping hot episode of Livewire delivered right to your heart and ears each week? Well, guess what? That can happen when you subscribe to the Livewire podcast feed and you'll get the joy of surprising conversation every week. So go ahead and do it. It's super easy. You click on the button at the top of your podcast app and bam, you are Livewire subscribed. And if you're still, you know, feeling the love, if you're enjoying the show, hey, maybe you could hook us up and uh, leave us a quick review. That'll help more people find out about Livewire. And thank you.